You're listening to Coding Blocks, episode 133. Subscribe to us and leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and more using your favorite podcast app. And go to http colon slash slash www.codingblocks.net for show notes, examples, discussion, and more. And feedback, questions, rants can be sent to comments at, which is uh, if you hit shift two, it's that symbol, like the circle with an A in it, uh, codingblocks.net. Hey, by the way, he left off the S and the HTTP because we are secure. I was going to say the same thing. Yeah. Oh, right. dang. And yeah. Uh, that's keyword coding blocks, by the way. Keyword. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, yeah, you can follow us on Twitter at Coding Blocks or head to www.codingblocks.net and find all our social links there at the top of the page. With that, I'm Alan Underwood, the secure Alan Underwood. <laughs> I'm Joey Zach, taking a trip back in time. And I'm Michael Outlaw. But first, this episode is sponsored by the University of California, Irvine Division of Continuing Education, one of the top 50 nationally ranked universities. UCI offers over 80 certificates and specialized programs designed for working professionals. And Datadog, the cloud-scale monitoring and analytics platform for end-to-end visibility into modern applications. So today we are continuing to talk about the Google engineering practices and this one specifically related to code reviews. Uh, So this is continuation of episode 132. We're going to pick up where we left off there. But before we do that, we have a little bit of podcast news. Hey, huge thank you to Code with Himanshu, Space Duckets, and Akira Kinski. Kinski? Sorry. (laughs) on itunes appreciate those views very much thank you all right and here's alan playing his his joke on me so uh one of these i'm I'm gonna oh boy this one's gonna be rough i promise (laughs) one okay so thank you from stitcher from anonymous from croatia uh and then morali suriar and then this next one i'm gonna try it it's gonna be something like Lean Ferrer pilgrimage skill. I, no, <laughs> I totally threw in the pilgrimage part. Uh, yeah, Ian Eli Jan Jan Fair pill. No, I don't know. <laughs> Alan wouldn't let me cheat and look up how to pronounce this one. So honestly, I, I don't know how to pronounce this one at all. We will actually have a link to the Wikipedia for the person who left this review. That was the crazy thing. There was a Wikipedia page for this name. That's so awesome. And I love it that somebody took the time to give a tongue twister. So when I saw that, I was like, well, Outlaw obviously has to read this one, right? Like, there's there's nobody else who should touch it. Okay, but now did you cheat and you already looked at how to pronounce it? I have not okay, looked at every, it. Okay, both of you take a turn. Go ahead, Joe. Um, looking at Wikipedia to see how it's pronounced. <laughs> oh, come on. Don't cheat. Oh, how to say it. Um, so, uh, it's, it's whalish. So, unfortunately, <laughs> I also <laughs> I apologize. That's actually not terrible. I would have said Lanferpigle Gwingle. So, yeah, I don't, <laughs> but yours sounded much, uh, more authentic. You know, I thought maybe it could also like sound much more offensive things. depending on who's, who you're asking. Yeah. So I don't know if you want to like go and uh, get too, uh, you know, reward him too much for that. Yeah, yeah, by the way, Jamie, I, I do think that oh, the other one's probably Morali instead of Morali. But 
but we could let him weigh in on that. And speaking of Wait, of which, what was though, the difference there? You said morale. I said morale. Aw, ah, aw, ah. Okay, okay. At any rate, so here's the cool part. So we started this episode 132, right? And we were talking about the engineering practices and all that. Well, Morali actually works at Google and he took the time to head over into Slack and drop us some notes on some of the things. Cause we had mentioned the owner's file and I was like, oh, I, you know, they mentioned it in passing and I don't know much about it. And so he actually gave us some information, which is really cool. So. I'll try and keep like a cliff's notes of this uh, for talking points right now. But if you'll go up to the show notes of this particular episode, so codyblocks.net slash episode 133, you'll actually see like I quoted uh, quite a bit of his his conversation because it's some really useful information. But basically what he was saying is every directory in their mono repo has an owner's file, which has a list of people that own that section. And if you are going to get a PR approved, it has to be approved by somebody listed in that file. And the way he said this thing works is very much like uh, like web configs or any kind of configs in like a .NET project or something like that. If there's not one in the directory you're in, then you go up a directory to find the owner's file, right? So if you're three directories deep, there's nothing there. You might have to go up to the root level to find that owner's file. So that's pretty cool. Um. What was owner's approval is something along the lines of is the CL appropriate for this section of code? You may need multiple owner approvals if you're touching pieces of code that have different owners. So, you know, maybe you're integrating with the library into somebody else's project, something like that. Like there might be things there where you have multiple approvals. And he actually shared a link from the Chromium project, which anybody that uses Chrome, uh, you know, you can go over there and look and see how they're doing that. Isn't that like the whole internet now? Like, yeah, just about. <laughs> yep. I mean, cause even, even Microsoft is based on Chromium now. Yep. Or uh, I should say edge is based on not Microsoft edge. Right. Yeah. That'd be weird um, if it was all of Microsoft based on Chromium. <laughs> right. uh, windows <laughs> going away. Yeah. Uh, so what did they have? Uh, they also had readability. So Outside of whether the functionality was there, this is sort of what we talked about, right? If it doesn't pass based off the style guide and all that kind of stuff, it can absolutely get kicked out. Which I thought was um, an interesting one. You know, like you, you have a language expert who could weigh in on the pull request. And even if it's functionally right and belongs in that area, that person could come along and be like, no, this, this is not very readable per our design standards for this particular language. And it doesn't have to be the owner either is basically what he was saying, right? right. It, like you said, it could be another person that is just truly concerned about how readable the thing is. That's the only skin they have in the game. So that was interesting. And what else did they have? So there, here was another one, and, and I'll read this one a little bit because this one will make more sense instead of me trying to paraphrase it. So he said, so for example, say I'm making a change to some Python code, Python code owned by my team. It's my team's code, so I satisfy the owner's requirement. It's production code, so it needs at least one other reviewer. Some teams allow some types of documentation sales to not require review. Also, everyone has their own private experimental directory for non-production stuff they're messing with. You don't need to code review to submit your own experimental directory. But it's Python code, so I need a Python readability approval. I don't have Python readability myself, so I'll need a reviewer to get me that. So... 
so yeah, they have these multiple levels of what has to go through a PR to get approved before it actually goes into their code base. So this was really cool. And then the last thing is they actually have a case study based on their modern review policies, their code review policies, and they have a doc that's published at research.google. So We'll have a link in the show notes to that. And I mean, again, just amazing stuff. So Morali, thank you for taking the time to actually write that up. It's it's awesome to get insight into the kind of things that are happening. I, I know that we're going over the documents that they provide, but it is really cool to hear somebody saying, yeah, this is what we do. Somewhere on, on, from the inside, yeah. Right, on a day-to-day basis. So very cool. And, and, and it again, almost Oh, sorry. Uh, well, one last thing. We've said it. I don't know how many times, if you're not a part of the Slack group, like you're missing out. Like there are people dropping stuff like this all the time. And it's, it's worth going in there and being a part of the discussion because it's a, it truly is a community of people that are really geared towards helping each other. So I highly recommend checking that out. You can go to codingblocks.net slash Slack to, to join up. All right, go ahead. Mike. So do y'all check in your sandboxes? Hmm. Do you have like a directory of just kind of, Stuff you're messing with? I usually do those as separate repos if it's like something. Yeah, I do it both ways. I'm bad. Same thing. Yeah. You what? What, Mike? I'm bad about not doing it. Uh, Oh, unless I'm ready for it. Unless I'm ready to share it with somebody else. If I'm not, then I'm just like, eh. What's the point? I don't care. I worry about it. That's honestly the only reason I do it. Is what if my computer gets nuked tomorrow? Right. Mm. That's really why I'll put it up in like a. I've seen sandbox. I've seen playground directories and stuff like that. I'll do that. Otherwise I'll do exactly what Joe said. And I'll create another repo and, and just push it up somewhere that people won't, it won't muddy up the main repository where it gets to the level of concern that I'm afraid if I lost it, then that's also kind of the mindset where I'm like, I probably want to share this anyways. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Fair enough. But, um, I was regarding, uh, Morales, no, is yeah, that a, okay. Yeah, uh, comment. Um, the uh, the way he described the the readability is it almost made it sound like like at least in my mind as I was reading it's like oh it sounds like you have to have like it's like a badge you know like you're gamifying the whole system right and it's like oh I have Python readability I have the C sharp readability badge what do you have you know it did very much sound like that. Mm-hmm. Which is, I mean, it's good. I, I think the thing I like about that is it takes the onus off one single person to have to do everything, right? Because, I mean, we've gotten pull requests in the past, and it's like, man, it's a chore sometimes to go through it all. Yeah. And I, and I also like that it was people being assigned looking at the pull request with a specific set of blinders on. Like, I don't right. care about the functionality of the code. I'm only looking at the readability of it. Like how readable is this thing, right? Or somebody else who's only focused on like, you know, does this even belong in my area? What what are you trying to accomplish? Yeah, it's not as overwhelming. And then the last thing I want to point out, because I don't think Joe Zach had actually done this, is he, he spent like, I don't know, a month and a half nightly going up on YouTube and live streaming him doing some leak code problems. And there's several videos up there. And if, if you've never actually seen Joe Zach in action, it's pretty fun because I don't know, man, just 
it's worth checking out. I have a link to the playlist because I think, Joe, you actually did a really good job of putting all these in a single playlist that, that people yeah. can go up and check out. So Somewhat good. Yeah. So definitely go up there, check it out. It, you know, it, it's good fun and you'll learn something more than likely. So yeah. I've done uh, 60 days now. Uh, I haven't streamed the last couple of days, though. My wife borrowed my webcam and I got a couple of days off. I was like, this is kind of nice. I could just <laughs> do the problems and move on. And it's definitely much easier to just do it without talking. Uh, but yeah, I've done uh, the the daily problem now for over sixty days, uh, and I'm gonna try and hit a hundred and just see see how it goes. Maybe I'll go loop back and try some of the earlier problems and see how it goes. But yeah, it's kind of cool. Nice, that's amazing. <clears throat> All right, who wants to kick us off now? All right, well I can take that. Uh, so today we will be talking about in more detail what to look for in a code review. So starting with design and Google says that the most important part of the review is the overall design of the change list. Isn't that crazy? The design. I mean that, that I don't know. Like I, I, I was thinking about everything that happens and I don't disagree with it, but I don't know. It, it was just weird that that they place that much, emphasis on having a good design of what's happening in the code yeah see so like uh you know imagine you get uh some code to write and you put it in one place and someone's like you know this there's a better place for this you need to get it in this other place and like fine you go move it it means you get a different reviewer you take it to that team and they're like no no <laughs> it goes better in the first place you ah well see that I, I guess that's probably the thing that we should point out is when they say design they are talking about that does the code make sense is it in the right place or does it belong in a library by the way i love that um does it meld with the rest of the system and is it the right time to put it here so like that's what they talk about design and i love that because i know i know the three of us have always we've looked at code before and we're like man this should not go here but we have no precedence for for basically slapping somebody's head and being like don't put this here Right. Um, or, or there's already a cruft of stuff in a particular area. And you're like, is this the time to draw that line in the sand? You know, like there, there are those questions. And I love it that they take a really hard stance on this. And no, that's, that's common functionality. That should be in a library somewhere or, you know, whatever. Like, I, I don't know. What are your guys' thoughts on this? I loved it. I mean, it makes sense because if the, if the, if it's not already a good design, then that can, affect the readability of it. Right. Because if you're going through a bunch of hoops, trying to make something happen in an area of the code that probably shouldn't be happening anyways, then you could have a bad like architectural design, you know, yeah. as a result. Yeah. And have we talked about before? Um, I've heard that uh, Google services are typically written in like C plus plus. And um, so if you, even like the, the code that for libraries that they published other places, like a lot of them still publish Java versions of services they use internally, which are C++. And I've heard that the kind of reasons for that are um, a lot of the services that they bring internally that, um, or that they work on internally will have all this other stuff that only makes sense for them. It's like, I got, you know, dependencies on like internal tools or things that are designed for the scale. Like, um, like the beam is the stuff I particularly heard about. So if you hear something about like a, someone talking about something, a service in Google that's typically written C++, but if they publish a, a 
you know, a package or a library or something for it. It's typically something in Java because it's just easier to document, but it's not actually the same exact code that they use internally. Oh, that's you, you mean when they publish it? Oh, sorry. You mean when they publish it for external? Yeah. Huh. So they yeah. use, they'll use a C sharp version, but the version that they'll make available to the rest of us will be a Java version. C++. Yeah, so it's like a fork of what they actually use. Uh, yeah, with the one that they publish. So, like, if there's a you know some Beam library or something that it'll typically be written in Java. Huh, that's pretty cool. But that's yeah, not. I, figure, the uh, I heard that on a, I heard that on a podcast. So I don't know how true that is, but I just thought it was kind of interesting to think that like, you know, they, like they'll say like people if someone just says like whatever service, it's probably C plus plus, and let's say say like the Java service. All right, so next up we have the functionality. So we talked about this on last episode. It's funny that this is even a bullet point to me. Does the change list do what it's supposed to do? Uh, Okay, (laughs) I would hope so. But, But in fairness, I have looked at pull requests before and said, wait a second. I thought you were trying to solve a, but it's not in here. Like what? It, so it's weird that this is in here, but there's been a number of times, at least in the reviews that I've done where I'm like, you're not solving the problem. Like there's a lot of code here, but I don't see what, what this is. You're creating a whole new set of problems. <laughs> Usually. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, you're right. It's weird, but rightfully so it belongs here. Yeah. So and I, mean, then, I think, uh, sorry. But I think that that's just uh, it, it's 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 no fault like you know any developer who who might be guilty of this right. It's all coming from a good place. Like you see something, you're like, oh, I should I should change X Y Z while I'm there, or oh, I can improve this system by if I if I add this other thing in, and so that's where you can kind of get like this scope creep, and you know by the time you're done you might not have even solved the original problem. And and maybe it's just because you're like, hey, let me go ahead and commit this thing in, get this into use uh, sooner rather than later. So it's not necessarily a bad thing, you know, or coming from a bad place. But yeah, hmm. that's, that's tougher though, because I would think that even for the change list to go in, you kind of have to define what your attempt, what you were attempting to do. So I guess in that case though, I would think, you know, the main thing was to add widget A, right? And instead of that, you ended up doing a bunch of other stuff. It seems like you wouldn't even include, hey, I added widget A. You just say, I, I did all this other stuff. So, so well, it's yeah. weird. I guess in the, in the, in the story that I was thinking of in my mind is that like somebody was like, okay, hey, I'm supposed to add widget A. But as I'm iterating towards that, here I've added a new dependency injection framework and I'm going to go ahead and commit that. And let that get reviewed and other people use it because it's going to help me out later. So here's the change list for ticket, <laughs> add widget A. But yet right. I'm not actually adding widget A yet. I'm just, you know, iterating my way towards it. Yeah, I could totally see that. So one of the other things that they ended up pointing <laughs> out here that I thought was interesting is not only does it do what it's supposed to do, but is it a good change for the users? And the user could be either the f- developers that come behind you or it could be the actual end users of the system. And I like that a lot too, right? Like, hey, don't just put it in there because, hey, they marked something done. It's, hey, is this an actual improvement for for everyone involved? It's so easy for us to just focus on what's easiest for us too, though. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, always just focus on like, oh, what's going to be better for the next developer to come along? And yet, 
you know, somebody else will come at it from like a higher picture and be like, the user isn't going to care about any of this. What are you doing? You're like, oh yeah, right. That's a good yeah. point. Oops. Oh, <laughs> um, as a reviewer, that I, I do like this one too, and this is by the way why Outlaw is included on most pull requests that are ridiculous. Is as a reviewer, you should be thinking about all the edge cases, currency issues, and generally just trying to see if bugs arise looking at the code. So not necessarily going and running it, but are, are there any glaring holes just when you're just, you know, skimming through it and looking at it and seeing if it makes sense. So it's one part turning on your human compiler uh huh, and two part turning on your human test runner. Yep. That's really what it is. Right. And warnings, warnings is errors too. <laughs> warnings is errors. Uh, it's hard to look at those. That's hard to do though, to like actually read through the code. It's hard enough to just like read through something and, you know, see if something, if there's compilation problems, which that's the most frustrating thing. If you commit code and you didn't even bother to compile it. Oh no. And I spot something out. That's a compilation problem right away. Then you can bet the rest of that code review. I'm going to be like really particular about every little thing, right? Like, I don't, I don't know. And that's probably not fair of me. No, it is fair. It's totally fair. If you're going to waste my time that I'm about to put some hurt on you, right? Like that's, I think that's totally fair, but I think to back up, this is where having a good build pipeline in the first place could help you out, right? Because that thing should fail the build and you shouldn't even have to look at it, right? Like if you open up a, a change list, as they call it, and you see that it failed some builds, then you can just write back and say, I'm not looking at this thing. It broke over here. Go figure that out. Well, that's assuming that you have a pull request, you know, like build validation type right. of rules on your pull request or your change list as Google refers to them. Right. So, and I mean, and we've definitely been in environments in the past where we didn't have that. And so it would be easy for somebody to just like write something and just assume it would work and try to sneak in a pull request. And then you look at it and you're like, Hey, wait a minute. And it could be something I, simple. Like, Hey, you forgot a semicolon. There are tons of people that think, Oh, I can just go make this change and, and push it in. And I've even been there, right? Like I'll, I'll think, uh, you know what? This is a simple thing. It, and you should never do that. You should hit the build <laughs> right after you make your change just to make sure. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, let's see what else they have as a reviewer. You can verify the change lists if you'd like, or you can have the developer walk through the changes, the actual implemented changes. So not just going through code, but like, let's say for instance, if you're working on something that's UI related, it might be hard for you looking at the code to visualize what's supposed to happen, right? Like there might be a series of steps you have to do to get this thing to trigger or do whatever. So you might actually get a developer to walk you through that in the UI. So you don't have to pull it down, compile it, deploy it, all that kind of stuff. Right. And I think what that's if fair. you are cherry picking from one branch to another, do you build and test every time? I know outlaws answer. Do you? Yeah, <laughs> uh, I think I, I can guess your answer. I think it depends on where that cherry picking is happening. If you're using something like Visual Studio Online, where you can auto cherry pick into new branches, I don't think I test it as thoroughly there. Whereas if it tells me there's a conflict, like because usually it'll tell you there's a conflict and you're gonna have to do it locally. If I have to do that locally, I do build it and test it out locally. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely do. conflict. But that, yeah, I mean, if it's just like a real simple, like, oh, just copy these couple lines there, like, what could go wrong? <laughs> then it's just so easy to not rebuild it. But it's possible for things to mess up because, you know, something later in the line or somebody changed a, a variable up higher where you can't see or something like that. So it's right. dangerous to do that, but it's. Easy. It is. Yeah, exactly. If the tools didn't make it so easy to push a button and make it happen, then I think that I'd be more apt to test it. Because I used to do all the cherry picks locally and push them up. But then when they added that button, it was like Mm -hmm. cherry pick and merge. Okay, (laughs) cool. (laughs) So I'm probably going to disappoint you here. Uh, So for me, like if I'll take the time on that first one, right? But then when it comes to the cherry pick, assuming that there (coughs) are no conflicts, then I will look over what the change list is through, you know, like the, the diffing tool. And just verify that it looks about like the same. And so where like, you know, it didn't just randomly insert an if block into like what a string is in some new file or whatever, you know, or whatever, some new change version of that file. You know what I mean? If I see that like things still look to be in about the same spots, then I'm not going to bother to, uh, build the, the cherry pick version. I'll let the, I'll let the build tool do that for me and verify, you know, because I've already done it for the, the original chain set. So I'll let the build tool do it for the build validation, uh, for the cherry pick as well as running any test for it, for that cherry pick. But I do visually inspect it. For anybody that thinks we're crazy talking about cherry picks. If you have not listened to the show where we talk about comparing various Git workflows, it's, highly useful if if you've only ever done things a particular way i don't know the episode number but the name of the episode is actually comparing git workflows so um yeah cherry picking could be your friend yeah if you have multiple concurrent releases then it's definitely friendly yeah it, it solved a lot of pains for us it was episode 90 and as you might get be able to guess it's one of my favorite episodes <laughs> of course it is uh, All right. And then the last thing that they say here is when they're doing these change list reviews, they specifically call out parallel programming types of issues because they're hard to reason about. Even when you're debugging, if you don't live in that world where you're working in concurrent type or parallel type things, just even understanding the the debug output that you get from that stuff can be difficult. So when it comes to those type of things, they truly want somebody that's more specialized looking at that so that they can identify where deadlocks might happen or those types of things. Yeah. It's always so much easier to just spin up a thousand instances of your application rather than have your application spin up a thousand threads. And then you try to reason about that in the code. It, parallel and concurrent programming can be very, very hard. It, it actually yeah. takes a little bit of time to learn your tools to know what they're showing you and what that represents. But has parallel programming kind of gone out of fashion because of the ability to just spin up multiple nodes? I don't think so. No. I because mean, threads are still way more efficient than launching an entire thing, right? So. Yeah. Yeah, I I wouldn't be surprised if some people do go about it that way because things like Kubernetes make orchestrating that stuff so much easier. But I don't think that they're I if you have if, if your problem allows you to spin up a thousand of the thing, you know, instances of your app to solve the problem, then I would tend to say like, "Hey, like just go take the easy side here, right? 
because like you said, for example, like if it is going to be in a Kubernetes world, it's easy to just say, Hey, scale deploy and boom, you know, thousand replicas. Right. right? Um, but that's not to say that every problem can be solved that way because, you know, there are other things where like you might, that might require some state that, you know, you have to have some kind of thread manager that's knowing like, okay, you know, your, this thread is particularly for this set of things. And this other thread is for this other set, you know, and you know, your, your problem domain might not necessarily lend itself well to, you know, multiple instances of the same application versus just single threads within it. So I, here's an example. And and I remember doing this, you know, several years ago, there was, an application we had at a company that we worked for that would basically create different size of images, right? For thumbnails, for medium, for, you know, high resolution images. And they had a process that would run that basically as new images got uploaded, that you would upload the highest res image and then it would try and create the other ones based off that. Right. Well, initially there was a program that basically just looped through and did everything. And it, it took over a day to, to finish up stuff. Right. And it was, it was kind of crazy. So what I ended up working on was something that would parallelize that thing because you didn't need it to happen sequentially. You just needed it all to happen. Right. And you had to keep track of what was done. So spinning up multiple threads made a lot of sense and took something that took over a day down to, you know, 30 minutes. Right. But here's where that would sort of fall apart. Doing that in, in a bunch of applications, single-threaded applications, wouldn't make sense, right? You're going to spin up a million of those things as opposed to, hey, I have this one app. It knows the stuff it needs to work through, spin up the threads that you need to do, work on them, and go away, right? So they're lightweight processes as opposed to full-blown application logic. So I think you know, depending on what you're trying to do, it wouldn't make sense to spin up a single individual, you know, Hey, I have an image, go run an app to process that one image, unless it was just hyper lightweight, but there's a lot of overhead and something, even like Kubernetes, we said, right. That's a lot of orchestration that'd have to do. So I think that's a situation where you would lean towards parallelizing and doing thread development as opposed to, you know, just blocking out an app. I don't know. Yeah, I was thinking if you had like, um, I don't know, 20 of a thing that you need to do, then, then, uh, multi-threading is great. If you have thousands, not so great. Like if your number of pictures went from millions to billions, then you're back to probably looking at distributing the problem, you know, from computer's perspective. Cause in that case, you can just add more nodes and use like a map reduce type framework in order to like do them all in the same amount of time, whatever. But yeah, if you could just divide the problem by five or 10 or whatever, some smaller number and get it to complete faster than, it's just kind of a uh, multi-threading kind of is like this in between now because it has gotten so easier because the tools have gotten so good for, uh, for multi, multi computing, distributed computing. So I don't know, it's kind of interesting. Yeah. It definitely, yeah. I mean, that's a fair point. It definitely matters on the, the number of things that you would possibly want to spawn because if you try to get into thousands <coughs> of threads, then you end up taking a performance hit on the overhead related to the thread management for that thing versus if you had, a thousand instances running individually, you know what that would mean. <laughs> so like all our other answers on the show, it depends. It depends. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Come here for all your definitive answers. <laughs> that's right. Yep. <laughs> you know what answer you'll get. Uh, that's awesome. All right. So next up we got is complexity. So I, I also like this one. They say this should be checked at every level of the change. Whether it's single lines of codes, functions, classes, they, like everywhere, they don't want overly complex code. 
I, I question like, um, think about how, cause complexity can mean multiple things, right? Like, and, and so to their point about like the single lines of code, think about if you've ever seen like some Perl, for example, right. And you question it and you're like, wait, what is that? It's one line of code, but what is it doing? Cause it's like taking advantage of all these like hidden variables that are, you know, um, uh, are not really hidden, but built in variables that, you know, you don't know about unless you've got like gobs of Perl experience, you know, but you know, if you're looking at it the first time, you might be like, well, wait a minute, well, where did this under underscore dollar come from? Right. Or something. Yeah. I, I don't know. It's been a right. long time since I touched Perl. But the point is, is that like complexity, you could have a single line. They could have a lot of hidden complexity in it that unless you like really know it, you don't know what's going on. Like unless you're like an expert in Perl, for example, but that's also where that readability comes back into play because the readability expert for Perl might be like, no, this is fine. Or maybe yeah. it's not. I think that's domain knowledge, right? And that's, that's a tougher one. I, I, I think where you draw the line is, so what you said about like Python having a specific things, like I've, I've really started getting into Kotlin lately and there's also things there that you look at that if you haven't gone and learned the Kotlin language, it just will not make sense. So there's a difference between understanding the language and the things built into the language versus somebody trying to get clever with a one line link statement that has 50 chains on it. You know what I mean? And I think that's where the difference is. If you're using built-in language support that that has that stuff, that's not complexity. That's utilizing language to make yourself and the code more efficient. There's the other of, hey, I could take this problem that should be on five lines and turn it into a one-liner. And that's that's a an experience type of thing, I think. Well, the method chaining problem that you talked about in Link, though, that would already break um, like uncle Bob, uh, you know, clean code type of design. I forget what exactly he called that one. Um, I think it had like a choo-choo train in the, <laughs> in the book. And yes, it's choo-choo. <laughs> but it, like an example. So some of the things that I ran into in Kotlin recently is there's something called reify. And you'll see that sprinkled throughout the code. And you're like, wait, what is this reify garbage, right? And it's a way for you to actually access the type of a variable like a, as a class. And you see these little keywords sprinkled throughout and no clue, right? I'm staring at it going, um, what magic are they doing, right? And that that's not fair because I wasn't a, I wasn't familiar with the language. Or using like the dynamic keyword in C sharp or something like that, right? Somebody that has experience in that language can look at it and go, okay, I know what's happening here. So I think what they were talking about is when, when people are just trying to make things, they're either trying to be clever or they're, they even call it out specifically over engineering something, right? Like we've all, we've all laughed about this before, right? You have something that you need to do and it needs to take steps X, Y, and Z. And then somebody's like, oh, let's have a rules engine. <laughs> You're like, wait a second. We have wood use case. Yeah. Like, why implement a rules engine right now, which is going to take weeks <laughs> when, when we can just say, hey, after X is done, do Y. After Y is done, do Z. So an if statement. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I've seen people reinvent stuff. They're like, oh, I don't need to use the library for this because all I need to do is check that it has an at symbol and 
you know, dot com at the end or whatever. You know, oh, oh that's not email. how you do an email. Yeah, don't don't try to write your own email address validation. You will fail. Yeah, and don't do the regex either. You'll fail because the first twenty answers you'll get on Stack Overflow will all be incorrect. Like, <laughs> there's there's so much. Well, we've, but, yeah, we've talked about this before, and I'm trying to remember what it was. There was a there was something that I think it's emailregex.com that has like here's the regular expression that'll work 99.99% of the time. And it has like the regular expression for each individual language. And like the one for Perl was like 50 lines long or something like that, you know, and it's just insane. And, you know, not to pick up Perl, but I forgot, like it's been so long. So I looked at Perl, like all the special variables that are in there, there's like probably 50 of them that, that if you don't, touch Pearl on a daily basis, you will not know these things. And you'd be like, wait, where did dollar exclamation point come from? What, what, <laughs> where did that value get assigned? You know, yeah, like, yeah. and I think I said underscore dollar a minute ago. I forgot that they're all dollar first. Yeah. Not don't want to go back there. Um, one other thing to point out here on the complexity is they said too complex means it's just not easy to understand looking at it. Right. Like it's a simple, it's very simple definition. And what they say about that is if you can't understand it, looking at it as somebody familiar with whatever language you're reviewing, then that means that chances are the next developer that comes behind you also won't understand it. And the chances of introducing bugs because of misunderstanding that code is increased. And I think that's a great point. Yeah, it, it, any bit of code that you don't understand, you're definitely going to introduce a bug if you start messing <laughs> with it. Can we just say that? That's a def- that should be a definitive. If you don't understand it and you start modifying, you're absolutely going to introduce a bug. Period. Unless, unless you have this next section here, which I'll let Michael take. Uh, okay, fine. So <laughs> the next section would be test. You know, so usually tests should be added in the same change list. Unless this is an emergency situation, which we covered the emergency situations as defined by Google last time. But I was actually going to say, though, that the complex portions of your code, the more you can break those down into tests, then the more it can be easier to grok just a specific part and then kind of like chain that knowledge together and be like, okay, this is overall what this big thing is trying to do. Yep. You know, this this next part of the test is actually funny to me. Make sure that tests are correct and useful. Man, I can't tell you how many times I've seen a unit test that I'm like, why was this necessary? Like, what? I mean, <laughs> you're not really adding anything other than the fact that you bumped up your coverage percentage. Like, you didn't add anything useful here. Was it my code? No, nah, it wasn't yours, I don't think. Well, cause, cause I say that because I, there have definitely been times where like, I guess in my zeal to, to have, you know, good test coverage and to make sure that like I've thought through all the different scenarios and everything. There have definitely been times where like after the fact, I'll go back and look at a, at a test, a unit test. And I'm like, Hey, wait a minute. Am I really testing my code or am I testing the result of some library? Right. right? In which case I don't care. I don't right. want to test the library. Although, uh, you know, we have definitely talked about doing that too, um, while covering, uh, the clean code series. But, but I think if you were going to do that, if you're going to have tests for tests in the library, then it should be in a named, specifically named 
uh, type of project, you know, so that it's clear what you're doing. And, and in my case, I definitely wasn't doing that. Yeah. No, uh, you did ask code some of the worst code usually because you don't do any sort of abstractions. Like it's very typical to have like a bunch of kind of boilerplate lines that like set up a few things and then it's tempting to just copy paste it because you don't want to go and create a bunch of classes just for like, you know, drying up your test code. So maybe you've got something that sets up this object, maybe, you know, adds a couple test values to an array or something and then you test with it. And so it's really tempting to like copy and paste that test and just change a couple of numbers. So uh, I don't know if you've seen that where like you've anytime you're dealing with arrays or collections or hash tables or anything where you're doing a big initialization, either you have a helper function that like creates object or you just have a bunch of code and you know repeated. So I can't tell you how many times with like lead code stuff where I'll copy the test before me, kind of change a few things, get something wrong, like miss a test value or something and spend time debugging, try to figure out why something doesn't work only to realize that, oh, I didn't change the uh, result value in the expected or, you know, whatever. So the te- the code worked the test was wrong and that's where copy and paste will kill you every time right like i do it all the time i'll copy and paste something because i'm like ah, it's mostly the same and, and especially in tests and then you'll miss the one variable that you yep. needed to tweak yeah, i mean it's inevitable <clears throat> one of the things that i like here is they say will the test actually fail if the code is broken <laughs> that's actually the importance of unit tests right like that is that's almost the entire purpose of what they're designed to do is to help you as you modify code in the future to make sure that the stuff's still working. But if it won't actually break, would you modify the code? Are they adding the value that you thought they were? They could be a false positive, right? This is a slippery slope though. So, I mean, we're not talking about the code, not compiling. We're talking about a, um, a use case that could slip through the cracks in the code that maybe you don't have a test that covers that particular scenario. Possibly. And so while, while we all strive to do that, it definitely happens. And like, I mean, we've talked about this in the past where like, um, you know, you get a ticket for something. And the first thing you do is you go and create a, a, a unit test that's specific to that test case or, you know, to that ticket to try to emulate that test case and then see like, okay, why is this a problem? Why is it not already covered? And what you might find is, you know, um, maybe, maybe you had one that would, that would check your inputs, for example, you know, to make sure that they were like numerics, but you didn't check the boundaries, you know, I, I mean, maybe, you know, I don't know. You, you see what I'm saying though? Like, mm-hmm. like if you, if you were taking strings in as an input and you're like, okay, let me make sure that this string is actually on numerical digits and it is okay, great. So, you know, and then somebody adds in a comma and now it's no longer all numerical digits or something. Right. But the point, uh, but I mean, getting back to the other point, edge cases, sure. Right. Like we've talked about this in the past. If you don't have the edge case in there, then when you come across it, then you add that as a unit test. Right. And then that way in the future, that one's covered as well. But the bigger thing is if you're using a method that's being unit tested and somebody goes and changes that method and it didn't actually break the unit test the way it should have, and maybe it wasn't an edge test. Maybe it just wasn't a good test in the, in the first place. You know, that's, that's, that's more of what we're talking about here. Right. Cause, cause edge cases are going to sneak in in many cases, but I, I don't know. Th- this one's a tougher one. And it's also really hard to identify until you hit some of these things that, you know, will, will trigger those things. But, you know, I guess my point was that like, it, it's totally fair if it, you know, like in your case, if it wasn't a good test to begin with, but if, 
I wouldn't necessarily like you're not even as a reviewer, you're not necessarily going to be able to come up with every edge right. case, you know, and until you can't you can't say like, well, until I've decided every edge case and have decided whether or not I think that the the test you've provided will cover it, you know, whether or not I'm going to approve it or not. Like, you know what I'm saying? Does that make sense? Yeah, like you, it does. You can't let that be the what's going to stop it necessarily. And, you know, if there's an obvious one, sure, fine. Point that out. Like, hey, you didn't you didn't bother to check the, your range boundaries. The the next one we have up here is, are the assertions simple and useful? And honestly, I no lie, when we did the unit testing episode way back when, the way the outlaw lays out his test, I've basically gone by that. I've actually gone back to that particular show notes page several times to look at over the years. And that's how I do, right? I, I try to make sure there's one assert per test, and then I'm testing very specific things. And I can't, I've seen lots of unit tests where there'll be 20 assertions in the same method. And it's like, well, what are you actually testing, right? Like this, this isn't, this isn't concise, right? This isn't actually testing the one thing that you should be testing. So simple and useful, I think is, is very strong terms that should be followed. Um, and are they are they separated appropriately? That goes back to the single assertion type thing, right? Like you should be testing a thing in each one, not twenty. Joe, less than been, less than twenty is good. <laughs> you've been quiet. You want to take the next one? Uh, yeah, naming. So uh, this is really important. Uh, were good names chosen? Uh, I am particularly fond of this one. I dislike. <laughs> I, I, there are some names I definitely dislike. Um, but uh, one thing that's really tempted to do, especially like languages like Java, where you have like person, person equals new person. Uh, I like to really look to see like, well, what's the significance of this person? Like what if if somebody like say, for example, is doing a pull request review or is looking at someone's code and they don't know what use case you're tackling. Like it'd be nice to know if this person is a customer or uh, is this a, you know, a potential fraudster or whatever. Is there anything you can do to give some context with your variable name? What's the meaning of this thing instead of just naming it after the object? Will you fail? Will you fail a PR based on that? Um, no, (laughs) (laughs) probably not. I mean, not not, like if it was person instead of customer, you know, if it could have been better, no. Um, maybe if the PR was so good that that was like the only thing I could think of, you know, then maybe, but if I did see like, if I see like person one, person two, if I see, start seeing like three or four, uh, uh, Oh, there was uh, some code I remember seeing a couple years ago. It was like, if the C1 equals the P1 dot uh, character and the V3 dot whatever. And yeah, it was just, I I couldn't, it drove me crazy. Um, Because I could, yeah, I could, you know, like if you just zoomed in to like look at a PR to see what they're changing and you're like, you oh, that's all the only context you get. And you have to like scroll up a hundred lines to see that C is customer and V is the value and to kind of do that translation and keep that back in your head that like that's, there's something wrong with that. You should be able to see what's happening just from those lines. I, you know, hope. Right. If you're going to have variable names that are just single characters, then your entire method better only be like three lines. I agree. Completely <laughs> agree. It, what about know, iterators though? Uh, iterators get a pass. If it's an I, you know, like for seeing customers, but I, I typically don't have lambdas that like go more than like three lines or so. Right. And that's probably fair. Uh, what about uh, long names? <laughs> I I prefer longer over shorter for readability, but you know I don't want it going off side of the screen either. <laughs> yeah, 
usually I, I kind of think of like if the method name is too long, it's generally because it's doing too much. Uh, so I think you should name things accurately. But there's been times when I'm like, well, this method, what it really does is like get <laughs> student ID and creates it if it doesn't exist. It's like, ooh, <laughs> what's Upsert. a better name? But that's a, a common pattern, you know, like create if does it exist. So Upsert student um, ID. Yeah, there you go. Uh, th- yeah, that's better. So it's short. It's uh, because if you see a long name like is this or that, it's like ooh, you know, it's gross. It's like at that point you're just just saying what the code is. You might as well just do the thing. So back to the question I threw your way: Would you fail a a, a change list or a pull request on some of these things? Uh, you say no. Nah. It depends. It depends for me how egregious it is, right? Like if there's a method name that got introduced that doesn't tell me anything about what that method does, I'll be like, you need to rename that. It, only because it's, I, I think about it from the perspective of who's the next developer to come in here and how mentally challenging is it going to be to backtrack and and find where this stuff actually impacts, right? So it, it's, I'm not as a stickler on internal variable names, like in it's inside a method as much as I am for class properties, uh, method names, that kind of stuff. Like those are usually way more important to me. Well, I mean, when it comes to method names though, we're not, we should, at least in my opinion, caveat this and say like, we are not including unit test names because oh, no. my unit test names are like off the screen long. <laughs> yeah, they, they are. Um, no, no, we're talking about regular classes, right? So all right, Outlaw, you want to take the next one? Sure, although I'm not crazy about it. Uh, comments. <laughs> <laughs> Were the comments clear and understandable? And so the reason why I say I'm not crazy about it, I think we might have mentioned this in the previous episode, but you know, if, if we're talking about comments that are like summary documentation type comments, then I'm okay with it. But like, I, I tend to frown upon comments that have to be in like the body of a method because then... As soon as I want to write one, I think to myself, like, if it's that complex that I have to write this out as a comment, then I've already done something wrong. And maybe I should just have a method name that's expressive enough to to uh, convey what what the comment was going to convey anyways. So, so comments, but, you know, asterisk. So it's interesting you say that. So two things I want to clarify here. First off, in the Google Doc, and I think we lost Outlaw a second ago. In the Google Doc, it says, are the comments clear and understandable in English, right? Like, so that was kind of interesting to me that they called it out specifically for English. And I guess it's because it's the most common denominator for most of their coders, right? I would imagine if you're somebody that that lives in the EU somewhere and that is your, your programming base, you know, it's going to be in whatever language is common for whatever your application is. But I guess at Google, theirs is English. Um, you know, um, I like watching uh, Yala coding on uh, YouTube, and uh, he, uh, he kind of speaks different languages sometimes. But a lot of times, he'll speak in Arabic if the code is still in English. So it's it's funny to be able to follow along and like certain words, you know, kind of cross over or whatever are common to both. So it's uh, it's been really interesting to kind of watch that and just see how much you can pick up because he uses good variable names and because the the code is very clear. And he, what's amazing to me, he's a great coder. You guys should go follow him. Uh, he does, he does programming challenges in C++, which like at a blush, like makes me think like, oh my God, that's terrible. Like it's so verbose and it's so wordy. But like when you see the algorithms, when the actual code part of C++, it's actually really nice and terse. It's, it's like 
comparable just a few you know within a few lines of like javascript code but it's not until you get into like the the header files and the objects and that sort of thing where it really gets for both so uh, seeing his code has been kind of uh eye-opening to me from from that perspective to see just how how clear and good it is but it's because he's you know very terse he's got good variable names and he's just a great cutter that's awesome so following up on what outlaw said he doesn't like the comments this is actually where google drew the line they said if you have a comment in your code it should explain why the code's there not what it's doing so to his point a second ago about well maybe i should name my method better maybe i should do this like that's all the what it's doing part if like (laughs) i've definitely written some comments in the past where it's like uh, I'm putting this here because I don't know how you get here in the code, right? Mm-hmm. Like I've, I've never seen this happen, but apparently it can. That's the kind of comment that is actually helpful, right? Like it gives somebody an idea of, you know, what was this harebrained thing they threw in here, right? Okay, well, this is why, right? There was some sort of edge thing that, you know, has to be traced back. So personally, I think that's really nice, right? Why not what? And that's that's beautiful. Um, they they said if it's not clear enough on its own, it should be refactored, which Good. is kind of yeah, along the lines of what I was saying a moment ago, right? Yep. Uh, exceptions. So <laughs> there are some things that uh, really do well with comments, like regex is a, a big one, where pretty much any regular expression should probably have some sort of comment because it's not always clear, or at least a really great variable name that it expresses the intent there. I don't want to see regex r equals and then, you know, like top hat dollar sign slash slash dot star slash dot. <laughs> like, uh, no, no thanks. Uh, also, if it's a really complex algorithm, like if you're doing some sort of BFS traversal to, you know, look at this and, you know, add these numbers together, whatever, that can be really hard to see from the code, but can be expressed easily in a, a comment that says like, BFS traversal that sums the neighbors or you know something like that. It's a one liner. You don't have to like parse through and take notes on <laughs> what is actually happening. I don't know if you ever seen like where someone will post a code for some sort of algorithm and say like, "What do you think this code does?" Like if you saw the code for merge sort without you know like a, a good <laughs> name saying what it does, like it's really hard to see what the heck it's doing. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, I did forget about regular expressions because that is definitely one where I've actually commented in the past where like that's the one area where I do provide uh, a comment on it because and I'll even I I've joked about it in the past where like you if you see any reference to monkeys in the in the comment then you'll know that that was mine because I'll I'll write something along the lines of like you know it'll say something like because regex looks like it was written by monkeys banging on keyboards and then I'll have a comment as like what each parts of the regular expression are trying to do for complex regular expressions, not, not for very simple ones, but fine. Oh, so, so you discriminate against people that don't have a deep understanding of regex is what you just said. Uh, no, I don't think <laughs> I that's think what that's I said. What I no, no. <laughs> What's this dot star thing? Uh, I mean, have you ever heard that? What was that? That, uh, that saying that was like, you know, if you, if you gave, uh, a, uh, a, a infinite, n- an infinite number of monkeys, infinite number of time that if they were just bang on keyboards, they would reproduce every Shakespearean work and uh, you know, whatever. Yep. That's uh that's good stuff. All right. And then the last thing, which Mike also touched on here was comments are different than the documentation of code, right? So when they're talking about comments and code, they're talking about the stuff that's in line. That's, 
you know, hey, why why is this doing this? We're not talking about the stuff that would be spit out in a Java doc or or JDoc or any of that kind of stuff, right? That's that's totally separate. That is there to express the purpose of what's happening, the usage and the behavior of that code. That is that's completely different than than these other types of comments that we're talking about that you would sprinkle in a change list. This episode is sponsored by the University of California Irvine Division of Continuing Education. UCI is no stranger to online education, having offered online courses to students around the world for almost 20 years. And let's face it, there's never been a better time to get a quality and convenient online education than right now. Yeah, you can learn from anywhere, anytime by choosing a schedule that meets your needs. Are you looking to get a job in data science? Listen, with UCI certificates in data science, predictive analytics, and machine learning, students will gain the necessary skills to land their dream data science job. Hey, and if you're looking to become competitive in the global marketplace, advance your career, or start a new one, UCI has the resources to support you on your new path. Enrollment is now open for the summer quarter, with courses beginning as early as June 22nd. Are you concerned about the cost? Well, don't be. UCI has scholarship options for those that qualify. So learn more by visiting ce.uci.edu slash coding blocks to learn more and reserve your seat. Again, that's ce.uci.edu slash coding blocks and reserve your seat today. All right. Hey guys, uh, Joe Zach here again, uh, doing an, uh, another excellent pitch for reviews because as you know, it's very important for us and it helps us find new listeners. And also we just really like it. So if you could, uh, leave a review, that would be super good. I don't know why I'm using my weird voice on this. Uh, but, uh, yeah, if you hear this, I hope you consider it. <laughs> if you go to kungbox.net slash review, we try to make it easy for you. And, uh, yeah, that'd be super great. <laughs> Do you, do you ever think that like what's weird about it is that you call it your weird voice? <laughs> like otherwise it would have been perfectly fine. Uh, I've, I've got a different name for it, but you know, I, you know, it, you know, it you, sounds, know. you know, it sounds more like your uh, smooth jazz voice. You know, that's right. You're listening to the smooth sounds of WJJAZ. Yep. <laughs> uh, you know, there was one stream where uh, I was like listening to this. Um, I've been doing royalty free music in the background. And, uh, there was like this weird, like, I don't know, kind of music. So I did the whole, like, you're listening to Joe Zach on. And then, uh, later when I kind of previewed the stream, I realized the audio was coming through. So it was just me being weird for five minutes. <laughs> That's awesome. We're going to hilarious. need a link to that one. <laughs> all right. I'll try to find that. But I mean, if you, if you watch, like, they're all kind of weird. So, you know. Uh, all right. Well. With that, we will head into my favorite portion of the show. Survey says. All right. Um, so a few episodes back, we asked, what is your preferred method to increase your productivity? And your choices were code to music in the background. Is that freedom rock? We'll turn it up, man. <laughs> Did you guys go back and look at the commercial that I added for that? No. Oh my god, it's so so trippy to see that again. Uh so definitely check out this is from episode 129 and I included a link to YouTube to the that commercial. All right. Uh, that was like or a, one of those your next choice 80s was, Say again? Sorry, that was one of those 80s compilations, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, awesome. Okay. Yeah. And it's it's it was 
I, the commercial was just around so much that you just heard it all the time and it became this like pop cultural reference, but it really wasn't a good commercial to begin with. <laughs> it's like, really? That got by? They got away with that? Okay. Uh, your next choice is absolute silence, except for that annoying buzz coming from my UPS and my monitor and my LEDs or Netflix encode. That's a thing, right? Or treadmill or bike desk, tone my brain and my glutes. Or Pomodoro, I live my life one quarter hour at a time. Or pajamas, all day long. And your last choice, take a break, go for a walk, eat lunch, anything to reboot. Okay. Uh... I think Math Wizard has gone first the last couple times. <laughs> so I, I'm going to give Alan the opportunity to go first this time. All right. So seeing as how we have multiple choice here, anybody that gets 50% wins, right? I think, I think we're good. Oh, I forgot. Was this a multiple choice one? Ooh, that's a no, good call. I don't it? think it was. No, I'm no. going to double check. Uh, so I, I I really don't know on this one. I think that it's going to be between either code to music in the background or take a break. I am going to go with take a break, go for a walk, eat lunch, anything to reboot, and I'll say twenty two percent. Although I don't think take that's a break twenty two percent. And this was a multiple choice one. I forgot about that. So uh, thanks for calling that out. Okay, so then take a break. And code to music in the background will go combined aggregate thirty percent. I don't know what to make of that. Um, uh, so yeah, I'm gonna I don't do the same thing. That. Wait, you can't have my number. Why not? <laughs> you have to have your own number. You can steal my idea, but you gotta have your own number. Uh, okay, thirty point oh. <laughs> <laughs> the math wizard wins again. That's right. Math strikes again. Uh, well, it depends because, see, I'm using a string operation over here to compare the numbers. So, uh, you know, three yep. zero and three dot th- three zero dot zero aren't the same. Uh, okay. So I miss it. So you, you're going to take, take a break and code to music, but somehow you want me to equate that into 30%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Aggregate. Add those those percentages together for me, sir. <laughs> okay. <laughs> We're trying to make things easy on you. Right. Yeah, yeah. it's not working. <laughs> uh, okay, actually, so because okay. this is multiple choice, what was the one chosen the most? That's what we should do, right? I want to say code of music in the background. That was the highest. Okay. At what percent? 30 30% still 30%. Oh, 30.0. That's 30. good for my, my string yeah. interpreter. There we go. My string comparison here. What about you, Joe? I'm sticking what? with your original answer. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, so Joe picked Pomodoro at what was 30.0%. Yeah, yeah, sure. No, I'm just kidding. No, seriously, what was yours? I didn't hear it. I'm, uh, by the way, uh-huh. I'm having like the worst internet experience over here, um, all thanks to the internet lords at AT&T. I don't know what is happening, so <laughs> I'm hearing yeah, like so every sh- other word from you guys, and right now you're frozen. Oh, wow. that's He's coming yeah. through fine for us, so that's interesting. Yeah, everything sounds good to me. Uh, yeah, so I said I want to go with 
with uh, <laughs> 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 sorry, I'm like making this like the longest survey says ever. <laughs> okay, so Charlie Brown's teacher takes <laughs> for percent. I think he's gonna win. He can't. He, there's no way he could lose with that. I don't see how he could. Right. I covered all words in the audio spectrum. Yeah. All right. So throw us the results because this is apparently going to be a fail, regardless of what we do. So, so there's Joe's answer, which can be interpreted as, you know, it's an interpretive answer. So whatever you want it to be, that's the answer it is for you. And then there was Joe's, uh, uh, Alan's answer for code to music in the background at 30.0%. And the answer is take a break. Go for a walk, Sweet. eat lunch, anything to reboot. Now, here's the rub. Technically, it is the winner, right? But percentage-wise, these were both like right on top of one another. There was one vote difference between these two. Wow. Oh, nice. So they were definitely the top two. Very cool. And right. what was how, how, was it a pretty high percentage or was it just a count of votes? Yeah, they were in like the 54, 54% range. Very nice. And that's why when you were like, okay, aggregate that together and that would be the total. I'm like, well, that could be more than 100%. So that's not going to work. <laughs> yeah. so I, I win either way. Nice. <laughs> Everybody won this one. Everyone um, but Law. <laughs> yeah. Any any curiosity as to what was last? Uh, pajamas. Treadmill. Pajamas, treadmill. Uh, treadmill was last. Yeah. yeah. Surprisingly. I, I did not expect that one. I thought that one would have done better. I thought that like <laughs> the idea of having Netflix on in the background would be like more annoying. I know people to do it. Yeah. 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 I can't, but yeah. Yeah, me either. All right. All right. So for this episode's survey, uh, Andrew Diamond from our Slack community uh, gave us this idea, which is, how after all of this is going on with the pandemic, how likely are you to advocate for working from home in the future? Your choices are after this pandemic, every opportunity I get, or after this pandemic, never, <laughs> or work from home. Is that even an option? I like those. Yep. I think it depends on how many kids you have at home. I think that's going to be the answer. <laughs> yeah. So if you have kids, then you'll say never. And if you don't have kids, then you'll say every opportunity. Is that the thing? Right. Right. Okay. Today's episode of Coding Blocks is sponsored by Datadog, the unified monitoring platform for full visibility into all of your serverless functions. You can troubleshoot performance issues faster by seamlessly navigating between logs, Lambda metrics, and distributed request traces all within one unified platform. And Datadog provides real-time screen boards and service mapping so you can get complete observability into your serverless environment. You can start your monitoring today with a free 14-day trial and receive a free Datadog t-shirt after creating just one dashboard. Visit datadoghq.com slash codingblocks to learn more about how Datadog can help you optimize your serverless environment. Once again, that was datadoghq.com slash codingblocks. All right, so on to the style section of today's uh, podcast. So uh, step one, have a style guide. 
Google has one for the most, for most the languages they use. <laughs> so, uh, that makes sense to me. If you're coding in R, then good luck with that. <laughs> I gotta say, I, like, R has got to be the ugliest language that is actually used by people, I think. Maybe if, like, if you're just, like, a math statistics person, then it's beautiful. But I don't know. I, I don't know. You've seen Q Sharp? That's not pretty either. Oh, is that it's, the quantum one? Yeah. Yeah, it's all the maths. So uh, make so sure the... If it's all the maths, then Joe should be really good at it, though. He might like <laughs> right. it. Huh? I'm an intuitionist with my math. <laughs> I'm one of those people, I don't know how I got the answer, but it's always right. <laughs> and sometimes the greater is incorrect. <laughs> sometimes the world is wrong, but I am always right. Uh, let's make sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, make sure the CL follows the style guide. What the heck does CL stand for? Change list. Seriously? Oh, on, change man. list. Okay. Uh, if something isn't in the style guide, and as a reviewer, you want to comment... Just put knit in there. How do you guys feel about knit? We talked about that last time. It feels okay. wrong, but we like the fact that there's some language that identifies that, hey, this isn't a blocker. Your change list can be approved. But, you know, for future reference. And we especially yeah. appreciated that Google compressed it to just three letters. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I like to think of myself as like the Jerry Seinfeld of coding. So I'm always like, well, isn't it weird that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So I'm a big fan of knitting. Uh, do not block PRs based on personal style preference. Yeah, definitely. Yep. Uh, unless it violates the style guide. If it, That's different, right? That So they basically called out there that if there is nothing in the style guide specifying what should happen in a particular situation, you can't let your personal preference block it. If it needs to be something that needs to be put in the style guide, then you need to amend the style guide, and then that way there's a future precedence going forward right but yep yep see and uh the more you can get it just into your ide so it just does it like the the right formatting the better Amen. uh style changes should not be mixed in with real changes that should be a separate cl uh, yes yeah. no no there's yeah. no waffling on this one i've seen people reformat entire blocks of code and there'll be one change mixed in with it and you can't see it Nah, we've talked about this before and my preference for that type of thing where like, if you see that something like that is necessary and should be done, then, you know, it should be done as two separate pull requests. Yep. One, which is the actual, you know, legit logic change that needed to happen. And the other one is the formatting change and you can make them as a pull, a pull request into one that then goes into master, yep. you know? Totally yeah, it should agree. be totally, sh to totally should be, should be. <laughs> yep. that, that would be nice. No, yeah, uh -huh. but I mean, there, how many times have you been in something you're like, man, I can't even make my change because I can't read what the heck's going on. Let me like rename some of these things, move this thing up here to the top. Okay, now I fixed a bug. Man, come on, are you really gonna say okay? Now let me back that all out and then check this in maybe with the bug, and then it's it's so hard to separate those things sometimes. I don't know that there's only been like one time that I ever denied a pull request because it was so much heavy formatting with little changes. For the most part, I'll put something in like a knit and be like, yo, <laughs> please don't do this. Right. But I've only been faced with it a few times that were egregious. 
I like it. You, you guys <laughs> should see just how bad my network activity is right now. Like, yeah. my, my ping times are like, usually my ping times are in like the two to four millisecond range. And every now and then they jump to like five digit numbers for a good, you know, few seconds. And and every time it does it, that's where I like completely lose you guys. You need to go up there and tell your wife to get off call of duty. Yeah. Right. <laughs> that's uh, clearly the problem. So speaking of these good, these uh, ping times that are all staying within the realm consistency, <laughs> this is, this is the next thing on the list. Right. And they basically say that if, if the code conflicts, if there's nothing in the style guide, or, or if there is something in the style guide, it wins, period, right? It trumps all. If it's if what's in the style guide is is a recommendation, not just some sort of hard requirement, then it's a judgment call. And usually you want to base it off the existing code so that you're not doing anything that is way outside the realm of what the regular code's doing. If there's no style guide then the code should remain consistent with the existing code, right? Like don't start changing patterns just because you don't agree with the other 90% of code out there. And they did say they put in to do's for cleaning up existing code. If it's outside the scope of the CL. So that one's kind of interesting. I I don't know. I I don't do too many to do's. Uh, I I guess I think more of those is tickets. So I guess it is a to do. You'd typically put in a ticket and say, come back and do it. But, but again, Style guide wins. If style guide's not there, then be consistent. Yeah, I dig that. Uh, documentation. If the change list changes any significant portion of bills, interactions, tests, then appropriate readme's reference docs should be updated. Um, I love readme's. I do too. I'd be fine with every folder having a readme. I think I would too, honestly. I, yeah. it, I It's surprising to me how little I cared about that until I started using more open source projects and you go into the folders and there's not a readme and you're like, what is this? Right. It's amazing just how useful those things can be in every single directory. Yeah. I've never said, Oh, another readme. Right. Right. Exactly. That's, that's really what it boils down to. It's instead, it's the inverse of, Oh man, what, what, what am I looking at here? Right. So yeah, that's beautiful. Uh, if the change list deprecates portions of the documentation, then they should also be removed. Um, yeah, sounds good to me. I should use de- I should deprecate stuff more often. <laughs> I, like, I don't like too. this. Yeah, I, I, I. We've all talked about it before. We are all fans of deleting code. <laughs> like, <laughs> if if that code is no longer useful, kill it. It's my favorite key on the keyboard. Now, what if I just don't like it? Like deprecate it. <laughs> Maybe like a don't like it tag. <laughs> so this next one, man, this one, this one's the part that makes it really hard for code reviewers. And they, they labeled this section every line. And what they mean is look over every line of non-generated source code, right? So, which by the way, for me, a lot of times generated source code, I have a hard time knowing whether that should actually belong in the repo. I, there are certain circumstances where it does, but whatever. But if a human wrote it, you should look at every single line of it. And they say you need to at least understand what that code is doing, which hopefully is not terrible. 
If you're having a hard time examining that code in a timely fashion, you may want to ask the developer to walk you through it. And this is actually looking at the code, right? Like, hey, Joe, what did what were you doing right here? Why is this here? If you can't understand it, it's very likely future devs won't either. Yeah, like we talked about um last time about having um not not letting the person walk you through the changes. Be like, you know, you sit there, speak when spoken to. Oh, right. that's kind of a cool way of like because otherwise it's just so easy to kind of lead so have someone lead you through and look at things in kind of a rosier rosier way than you would normally. Right. I think I think that whole thing of of the reviewer asking the questions, it really does boil down to just that is Hey, if I don't understand something, let me ask instead of you just bombarding me with information because you're intimately familiar with the changes you made. Let me make sure I can grok it. Right. And that's that's the big difference between the two. And this is the other part they say here. If you don't feel qualified to be the only reviewer, make somebody else who is qualified can come in and do the review. Right. Um that's that's fair. And and again, they go back to the stuff that's truly um noteworthy are things like concurrency, right? People that that have special knowledge in that area. Security is another one. And we don't talk about that a ton on this show, but yeah, security is one of those things that you don't want to screw up, right? Because that's that, that can lead to really bad things for you and your company. Accessibility, internationalization and some other things, right? So so yeah, it's very important that you actually review the pull request and don't just rubber stamp it. Though context dump, sometimes you need to back uh, to back up and get a bigger picture of what's changing uh, rather than just looking at the individual lines of code. So uh, one thing we talked about before, but haven't recently, is having a link back to the ticket. So some sort of reference point. Um, and I think that's probably just kind of common practice at this point. And uh, if you've got a nicely integrated environment, you should be able to just click and get to the ticket. And I think that helps kind of give context. And if, especially if you can keep your notes on that issue in the ticket and have those conversations about the ticket in the ticket rather than in email or in meetings, whatever, then uh, the more the better just because that stuff is tied uh, tied together and it's not going to be lost in some email or archived or just disappear. Yep. Uh, also, they recommend looking at the whole file versus how those few lines were changed might reveal the fact that Maybe there's uh, some other way to do that, or maybe there was already a private method that did this, or maybe duplicating functionality or doing something in a, a different way. I do like the fact that they called out the fact that you, I think I just said the fact that twice. Um, I like that they call out that you might only be seeing three lines of code, but if you were to blow out that file, you might see that that's nested inside some method that's 200 lines long, right? Which is an obvious candidate for, hey, maybe this thing needs some refactoring, right? Yeah, but don't refactor in that same PR. <laughs> oh, no, you totally can. Absolutely can. Well, I thought we were saying we shouldn't. Uh, oh, yeah, okay, refactor. So I guess I, I didn't think about that. Like earlier when I was talking about um, doing cleanup and stuff uh, and mixing with my changes, I was thinking about really refactoring more so than. No, those were styles, right? That was okay. a difference in styling your code versus refactoring. Refactoring is a different ballgame, which you have a good point, though refactoring can muddy up what it is you're actually trying to fix, right? Because if you if you needed to change two lines of code to fix the bug, but to make it more readable, it, it was, you know, 70 lines of changes. That might be an argument for two separate PRs. I mean, it depends on, like, you know, how big the the issue is, Yeah, right? 
Sure. You know, if your refactoring effort only takes five lines, then fine. I right. don't care. Agreed. And uh, a couple of questions here to ask about the code. Is the change list improving the health of the system? Uh, if it's making it worse, that's probably reason to decline. If it's complicating the system or if it's making it less tested, then those are probably reasons when you might want to consider. Um, is there, I, I've never seen a good PR that like really shows me uh, the percentage of tests changing. So you can absolutely automate that one. You can mm-hmm. you can say if the testing coverage percentage drops below a certain threshold, automatically fail the the pull request. But how do you see it? Like if you're just uh, let's say you don't have that rule and you want to know if the, t- the test percentage coverage is going up or down, like you kind of have to look for. It. I don't know how to do that except for looking at the report afterwards. Well, yeah, I mean, I if you don't have that, if you don't have something that's, you'd have to look at like what the trend of the the test coverage is over time. You're not yeah, going to never seen it in PR. Um, yeah. I don't, I, yeah, I think you'd actually have to eyeball it. Right. If somebody added five new methods and there's only one, five new public methods and there's only one test, then maybe you'd have to visually do it. Right. But I think, I think what outlaw was, was saying and probably what I was thinking also is you'd probably have something plugged into your build pipeline that would generate that report that you'd probably look at it in conjunction with, Whatever the PR is. Yeah. Or the change list or whatever. And they also do this quote here that I really liked. Do not accept CLs that degrade the health of the system. Like it's cut and dry. They they don't. It's not like, hey, if this, then that. It's no, <laughs> you don't do it. All right. And uh, yeah, most of the systems don't become. Say again. That's kind of a tough one though, right? Like to know if it's going to degrade the health of the system over time. It's like, if you've, if you've looked at a set of code and you're like, okay, this is a good architecture. It's readable. It's clean, whatever. You know, how do you, how do you go from that to say like, it's, but I can tell it's going to degrade the system. I think it's an obvious thing. I I think that's the key, right? If there's something that jumps out at you that says, wait, you have this thing that is in an infinite loop that's constantly pulling or hitting something and it's always adding things to memory. Like, you know that at some point it's going to introduce a memory problem or it's going to introduce some sort of latency issue into your system. I think it's got to be obvious, right? Because like you said, a lot of code things are not going to jump out at you like that. What about um, removing unit tests that fail? (laughs) <laughs> or rather than rather than fixing the unit test or updating you're like ah oh, screw these that's you can make an argument that that can degrade the health or um i was thinking too of like, okay, if like remove some sort of system where you're like okay well i fixed the bug in telemetry by removing telemetry mm. like, yeah the uh this my code my my amazing fix broke this unit test so to fix it i removed the unit test yeah like okay so basically what you're saying is anytime you see a unit test that's being removed that should raise a red flag like why did you remove that unit test Mm -hmm. okay i i i like that okay so uh we've got a very short list of good things to discuss wait do we hold uh, hold up up. yeah this last one's important oh well should say it (laughs) go ahead mike okay so since you can hear me now uh, most systems become complex through many small changes. Which is why they don't let these little things in that degrade. They said it doesn't matter how small it seems, 
it's over time that it really starts adding up. Death by a thousand cuts. Yep, exactly. Yeah. All right, now, now, Joe, now you can jump into there. All right, we've got a sh- uh, very short list of good things, so if you see something good in a, in a change list, uh, let them know. It's okay to say, you know, positive things. Uh, a lot of times we focus on mistakes, but uh, positive reinforcement can do just as much good as uh, finding something bad. And uh, this is particularly true when you're mentoring. This is a position where you're probably giving a lot of, you know, not negative feedback, but, you know, you're constantly kind of, um, you know, guiding someone, which uh, goes a long way when you we're able to say something nice about it, too. Makes them feel that uh, they're actually improving, and I'm sure they are. So it's, it's just easy to just focus on the negative. So I like that. So in the spirit of Google here, with the uh, compressed three-letter version of saying that you're nitpicking on something, we should come up with a three-letter version to say that, you know, this is actually awesome. So, uh, you know, I don't know what that would be. So just thinking off the top of my head, like if you were going to make the opposite of nit, maybe it would be like not. (laughs) But then that Uh doesn't feel like it works. And nat doesn't feel, you know, like it works either. Wait, wait, well, you did the, well, turn it up, man. Why don't we just make it rad? <laughs> oh, rad. yeah, rad. That's okay. awesome. I was thinking also yay or cool. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> I like it. This is where this is where uh, emoticons are your friends. 100. Uh, true. true. Yeah. I, I do love that the most of the tools like GitHub and all those do have emoticons built in now. That's That actually makes me very happy. Yeah. Star eye, hard eye, whatever. By the way, I, I'm curious. Do you? And I, I actually feel bad about this now, thinking about it. Do you guys often put nice comments on PRs? Like, oh, that's I do that's all the time, every single time. Yeah, I click that approve button. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering where you go. I was like, dude, I had never said anything nice from you on my pull request. What are you talking about? I approved yeah. it, didn't I? <laughs> What about you, Joe? Uh, no. Like clicking that button. I, I tend to, sometimes I'll, I'll say stuff like, you know, I, I try to let people know, but I'm sure I don't do it enough. Like, like, Hey, I saw how you did that. You know, that was nice. I appreciate that you went through the effort or that you did something and whatever. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. I don't do it much. I need yeah, to. I probably don't. And what, you know, what stinks is like, I probably am way nicer to people whose code I don't review often. And the people <laughs> who like consistently do good stuff, I'm just like, yeah, fine. <laughs> <laughs> This is the twelfth PR in the last two days. Yeah, yeah, it's like being married. I've been married for almost ten years now, so it's like I, I'm so much nicer to strangers than I am to my wife. <laughs> Jeez, <laughs> like the barista at Starbucks. I'm like, thank you so much. Here's the tip, even though he didn't even ask. That was so nice for you <laughs> for my four dollar coffee. Yep. <laughs> wow, uh, that's beautiful. harsh. Okay, so uh, we'll have plenty of links in uh, this episode's show notes, as well as the mystery of how to pronounce line fair pilgrimage guile. <laughs> By the way, I looked at uh, typing that. I initially assumed it was just like someone like splatting on the keyboard, just like pounding on it. But when you look like it's it's gymnastics, like the letters are not next to each other at all. No. Yeah, you got to really bounce around. There's an unusual amount of L's in that, too. Is that like a legit name? Dude, I, it is. I, it's I a did, local yeah. government community in the island of Anglesey Angel, oh, in Wales. But it's not a person's name, though. Uh, it's You're the name saying. of a local government community. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like a town. Okay. 
Yeah, but it's real. It's legit. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure they just threw that in there to throw me off, and they they did a good job. And you know what? In fairness, Alan, you told me to not cheat, and I just now, for the first time, pulled up the the Wikipedia link I here to still see. Can't do it. And I'm looking at this pronunciation key, and I'm like, wait, what? I still, <laughs> it's got the number four in it, like four times. Like, how do you pronounce that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's also a place in Wales called Cakeland that uh, Jamie mentions pretty often. Well, I, I can pronounce that. I know. I can, I can definitely pronounce that. I can eat that. <laughs> uh, all right. So we're right. going to have some resources in this show. Yeah. Sorry. I got distracted. Uh, all good. <laughs> and with that, we'll head into Alan's favorite portion of the show. It's the tip of the week. Yeah. Although I think it's going to change to watch Mike pronounce this. <laughs> <laughs> all right so uh for my tip of the week uh it's kind of odd uh i saw an article on hacker news that had like a kind of a it was like an article about something counterintuitive i don't even remember what it was and uh one of the people listed like oh you know that's uh that's funny i recently stumbled across this list of common misconceptions on wikipedia and it's just a gigantic list uh i don't know maybe 100 200 items that are um, things that uh, just common misconceptions, things that people think that aren't necessarily true. And so I've got a, like a list here of a couple, and you can uh, check the show notes on the podcast you're listening to right now in order to find this link, or you just Google list of common misconceptions. But uh, here's just a quick list of things that's on there. Um, Twinkies don't last forever. In fact, they only have a shelf life of about 45 days. Not in my house. Before they go bad. <laughs> 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 it's like 15 minutes on the car ride home uh, see uh you don't get tetanus from rust you get uh tetanus from a bacteria that's uh, frequently found where rust is also found um have you ever heard this one where like if someone's an undercover police officer and you ask them if they're a police officer they have to tell you totally not true <laughs> so whew. Uh, dodge the bullet <laughs> right yeah <laughs> Uh, if you ever heard the story about how Mary uh, Antoinette did not uh, uh, said let them eat cake about like a, a famine, uh, that expression was actually around. Was never uh, no one's ever been able to actually attribute that to her. Uh, did you know Napoleon wasn't short? He was actually taller than average. That. Really? Yeah. So they called him the Little Emperor, but they they say that was more of like a term of endearment. Also, he was uh, frequently surrounded by guards, which were uh, very much so high, like taller than usual because he would kind of hire big beefcakes. So that's, you know, kind of something I thought was funny. Taller than average. That's good. And uh, one of my favorites, uh, if you've ever heard the expression that people only use about 10% of their brains, they say uh, that is total BS. Anyway, it's just a big list of things like that. So you can just be – just crush that next party you're going to. (laughs) Interesting facts and everyone will love you. Well, I want to hear math whizzes percent, like how much of their brains do do people use? Right. Tell us, Mr. Wizard. Is it uh, 110%? Mobius strip percent. The Mobius percent. Yep. Uh, uh, Pi divided by negative E percent. Uh, um, okay. So then for uh, my tip of the week, this actually came up multiple times uh, this week. And so I was like, okay, this, this has to be mentioned because coincidentally, this, this tool for Visual Studio Code called Draw.io, and I will have a link to the Draw.io integration for VS Code. Like, just randomly, like, coworkers are like, oh, man, you got to use, you know, I found this neat tool, blah, 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 blah. And then, unrelated to that conversation, in 
in the coding block Slack, there'd be other people who were like, oh man, there's some amazing new tool called Draw.io. And it's like, it only just was just released, uh, at least the latest version, uh, May 9th of this year. So maybe that's why, like, I don't know how, how old the original version is, but it is really cool that you could like do all your drawing straight in Visual Studio Code and then be able to like, you know, commit that in. That is truly most excellent. Yeah. All right. So my tip, so I've been working a lot in Google Cloud of late. And man, (laughs) I don't know about you guys, but I've always disliked XML. And, And I dislike it not because of what it is to me in its human readable form, because in its human readable form, it's amazing. It's the tooling for working with XML that drives me absolutely bonkers. So... I asked the question to several of my dev colleagues the other day. I think you guys included like, hey, do you guys know of any way to modify XML in Linux? Right? Like, and on the command line. And we were all like, yeah, you said. Yeah. And said is nothing more than text parsing, right? Like it's not actually telling you if a node exists and if it exists, then do this or modify the value. Like, and let's be clear here. Said is one step removed from regex in terms of its readability, right? Like it is disgusting. So the short answer was no. So in Linux, there's probably a very good reason most config files are just straight text lines, right? Because you can easily read and parse those things. The XML wasn't. So here's the problem. I was working with Google Dataproc. So basically spinning up clusters of servers. And the problem is when you spin up a cluster of, let's say, 10 servers, you need the same configurations to land on every single server, right? And Google has a thing called initialization scripts that actually run on each one of the nodes as they spin up. Well, I was looking for a way to modify some of the standard configurations like a Hive config or a Hadoop config or a Yarn config or whatever, right? And that's what I was looking for. Like, hey, can I do a shell script that'll do this? And it turns out the answer was not a simple yes. So I was like, okay, well, I guess I'm going to write a jar file. And then that way I can go modify these things. And that's also ugly. Like I was just blown away and frustrated by how hard it is to actually modify an XML file in any kind of simple form. Right. So I spent a decent portion of a day writing a little Java app, a Kotlin app to modify portions of a config file. And it really irritated me because it was like, okay, this is very much a one-off. Okay. All that said, after I spent the entire day doing it, making it work, I found as I was researching other things that Google Dataproc actually has this built into their uh, into their CLI tooling. So they have what are called cluster properties. And here's what stinks, right? If you miss one, it's not easy. If you spin up something with 20 nodes, are you going to log into every single node and then run some script to update it? Like it's just easier to kill the cluster and start over, right? Which is what I did. I don't know how many times in a day. This thing called cluster properties, just know that this exists. If you scroll down on that page with the link that I've got there, you'll see this list of various different file prefixes that they have. So typically when you're working in something like Hadoop, Hive, that kind of thing, there are all kinds of configuration files, right? They have set up this thing to where in the CLI, you can simply call out the type of config you're looking to augment, modify, add to, whatever, And then just give it key value pairs and it will automatically on every one of the nodes that spins up, go in and modify that config or those multiple config files for you on every one of the nodes. 
so beautiful. That's Didn't know it right. existed. That's just the so, beauty of like infrastructure as code, though, because I, I've I too find myself like it's just easier to tear it down and rebuild it. Yeah, it, it, because if you script it out, which by the way, I, I know there's lots of people out there, and we've we've played in Azure. We we've been in AWS, Azure, Google Cloud. Here's the thing. Like Azure is really good at their UI. If you log into their console and you want to spin things up, it is super nice to do it. What you'll find is after you do that three times, you'll be absolutely sick of clicking and typing the stuff in. Their UI is amazing, but you always need to be looking for that thing that says script this thing out to some sort of template, right? Or some sort of CLI. Because then you can just hit enter, right? And and this is where the culmination of 133 episodes of Coding Blocks comes together <laughs> is because we have shared tips. Like the one that I don't know if you guys remember from the command line, if you hit com- control R on the command line, it'll allow you to search for previous commands you typed in. I use this all the time now because I'll do something like G cloud create cluster, right? So I'll just search for, I'll do control R, and then and search for create. And then if it wasn't the very last one, I can do control R again. It'll show me the previous one, et cetera, right? So that combination of things with just knowing the environment you're working with, like this thing that will allow you to edit these configuration files without writing your own applications, it, it all comes together. So yeah, that's my very long-winded way of saying that you don't have to write your own programs to go modify XML files if you're trying to spin up Google Data Proc clusters. <laughs> Save you know, yourself some time. I got another tip for you. You remind me uh, <laughs> talking about Spark. So uh, if you have an open source project and you want people to use it, just provide them with a Docker file. Like it's so much yeah. easier. Uh, I was trying to do a little bit of work with Spark. I was unfamiliar with it. I kept looking for a Spark image. There is no official one. The only way uh, you can build the official image is by checking out the uh, project and then running a command. that's like build Docker dot sh which doesn't work in Windows. So it's like, okay, well, I guess I'll install WSL. I'll install Java, set my Java home, <laughs> build my SH. And the result of that is like a text file that a million other people have done. And right. there, no one had you know built it anywhere. So yeah, <laughs> make it easier for people. Oh man, that that's another thing that reminds me. So I'm sorry to tail off that one, but that's that's so good because what he just said about Docker is one of the things that is most frustrating to me is I've seen even Hadoop um, or some other things like that, people are like, well, why do you want to run Hadoop and Docker? It doesn't make sense because Hadoop is essentially just a manager of other nodes. The reason it makes sense is because as developers, you want to be able to spin things up and use the stuff, right? You're not actually setting up 12 different machines with disk arrays and all that kind of stuff. Do it. You just need the environment to work so that you can test out your stuff, right? Right. So you're yeah, trying to test you, out the code, not the infrastructure. Right, right. So, yeah, the, there's man. If you can make your stuff work in a Docker environment, please do because it'll get it'll actually garner adoption to your platforms. Not that Hadoop needs any help, but you know what I mean. <laughs> I hear it's struggling. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Which Those, oh man, we should pour one out because can, can we talk about this? Is oh, it too soon? Man. Yeah, well, I mean, speaking I, of, has, we don't have to pour it out yet, right? Yeah, we it, don't it, know it, yet what's going to happen. But right. but there was some uh, Apache drill news that didn't sound too promising. Let's say is that yeah. a fair way to categorize it? Yeah, I think. Which, if you saw the stream, the live stream that uh, Joe and I did with Apache drill, 
Um, you know, and, and even we've talked about it on this, like all three of us have like fallen in love with it, but we were, I guess, definitely late to the game. And unfortunately, uh, it looks like the writing might be on the wall for it, but you could, so could outlaw become a reviewer. (laughs) Well, that's what I was going to say. So, so if you have an interest in it and you want to help that project out, you could actually, uh, you know, become an owner of that project and a code reviewer for it. And you could have your name added to the owner's file. You could. (laughs) The interesting thing was the article that Joe sent along the other day was basically because the number of people involved as reviewers right now has dropped so low that it may fall out of the Mm -hmm. active Apache projects, right? Yeah, but can't it just be done? That's that's one thing we've talked about a few times. Like, what's wrong with just being done? I, I think the only problem with something being done is because things change so rapidly that yeah. as soon as that thing is out of favor six months down the road, then nobody's going to use it. Right? Yeah, it doesn't because, support any new versions. Yeah, yeah it hasn't been maintained. So e- even if the thing works, right? Like even if you have an XML parser that was written five years ago, people are going to be like, is there nothing newer? Right? Like if I see something that was touched three months ago, I'm going to use that over the one that was touched five years ago. So. Yeah. Yeah, it does make me sad. Uh, Apache Drill is a fantastic project. So, all right. So, uh, with that, uh, we hope you enjoyed this show. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, more using your favorite podcast app in case of a friend happened to uh, give you a link or let you borrow a device uh, to hear this episode. And um, as Joe mentioned earlier, if you haven't already, we would greatly appreciate it if you took the time to leave us a review. You can find some helpful links at www dot codingblocks.net slash review oh yeah it's my turn uh while you're <laughs> up there check out your show notes examples discussions and more and uh if you are into social media you can check out live journal uh, we've got a myspace page and a friendster <laughs> uh if you just for, search for uh at coding blocks wherever you are then you should be able to find us and um you know check out our top eight and we've got a, a bunch of other social links at the top of the page. MySpace, that's that's where you can hear all our latest songs. Yeah. <laughs>